guys. Welcome to the podcast. This is Doing It For Bartolo, presented by the Hardball Times. My name is June Lee. Today on the show, we have Jonah Carey of now CBS Sports, uh, Sports Illustrated, and Nerdist Sports, where he has the Jonah Carey podcast. Uh, but of course, Jonah is primarily known from his time at Grayland, which came to an end uh, recently. And he came on the show this week to talk about a lot of things, uh, his career in journalism and how he got into sports writing and, and his time at baseball perspectives, how, where he got his start writing about baseball, uh, his time uh, writing about the economy and how that really prepared him in, in some interesting ways to write about sports and, and journalism and, uh, and baseball as a whole, excuse me. And I mean, Jonah's just a really great guy and he was a, a really fun guest to have onto the show this week. Um, he caps off Grandland Week. This is, of course, a, a special Friday episode. We had Shea Serrano of Grandland fame and the Rap Yearbook fame on the show on Wednesday. And so Jonah is going to be capping off our special Grandland Week, uh, a special two-episode week uh, for Doing It For Bartolo. Uh, Jonah was a great guest uh, and I really hope you guys do enjoy our conversation. So without further ado, uh, this is Jonah Carey of Grandland uh, and our interview's right after this. Uh, so Jonah Carey is on the show today. Uh, thanks for taking the time, Jonah. I am literally on the phone as we speak. <laughs> as as uh, his uh, intro music for the podcast. Correct. Right? would suggest um jonah you are doing a bunch of things now uh after post espn uh lots of jobs lots of new opportunities with all the new stuff that you're doing what what do you what are you looking forward to most in in terms of uh maybe expanding your horizons well i mean cbs and si are both great gigs i think i would say that the or the expanding horizons Pecking order, I would say SI just in terms of NS is a great gig. Like I'm super happy about it, but um, that's probably the kind of thing where it's least out, out of my comfort zone because it's going to be writing to 30. I'm going to be doing the exact same call that I used to do, uh, and that's that. So that's no big um, as far as that goes. Even though I'm excited about it and they've been great to me, uh, my MLB trade value call over there too. Probably the next order up in terms of comfort zone or new stuff is CBS. I'm going to be doing a lot of baseball writing for them, too. However, um, the deal there is that I'm also going to be doing a lot of video, and uh, they've got some pretty cool plans for me. They want me to do, oh gosh, like all kinds of innovative stuff. I don't really want to give too much away yet, but we've got some plans, let's put it that way. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited about it. And uh, you'll see some different kind of stuff that you might not necessarily have seen before as far as video goes. Um, and when that comes out, you'll be like, oh, wow, I didn't think people could do that on the Internet. So that'll be fun. They're really, really being very aggressive uh, in that regard. Uh, and I'm excited about that strategy. I think that this company is, uh, is, is really growing. And um, I like their future. Whatever the fact that it'll just be fun for me job-wise, I like their direction very much. So that, that's that. And finally, I guess the the one that's most exciting and new and different is not most exciting because they're all exciting, but different is the Nerdist thing. Um, Nerdist is a really neat company. They are they you know they've been specializing for years in sci-fi, and tech, and comedy, and fantasy, and video games, and they never had a sports presence. Owned by Legendary Entertainment, which made the Batman movies, they're a very large entertainment company. And uh, I'm friendly with a guy named Chris Hardwick who runs that. Uh, Enterprise and host Talking Dead and, and uh, at midnight and all kinds of cool stuff. And we had kind of talked informally about 
something, and then basically we just ask them point blank, what if I started a thing called Nerdist Sports? We don't yet know exactly what that thing is going to become, but what I would say is it's going to start with my podcast. You will see other podcasts eventually, and we will kind of see how it goes from there, but they have video capabilities, and you know they're affiliated with a, uh, a film studio, and they make TV shows, and there's the capability to potentially do internet stuff, uh, you know, writing, whatever. So uh, put it this way, I'm not going to be the only person who works for Nerdist Sports, and uh, most likely we will eventually go beyond podcasts. When that happens, who it's with, whatever, that's way too premature. But uh, I've got some stuff cooking behind the scenes that I'm excited about. Yeah, I mean, as a big fan of the of the original Nerdist podcast, it was uh, it was interesting for me to see. I remember a couple of years ago when uh, – or it was maybe it was last year when when you went and first went onto the podcast and be like, oh, Joan, Jonah Carey's on the Nerdist podcast with Chris Hardwick and Matt Meyer and Jonah Wright. Like that was it was interesting to see your name pop up there because it was you know mostly pop culture people and uh, people on TV and movies. So to see a sports writer on there, knowing that Chris you know wasn't a big sports person was pretty funny. I thought. And that's Matt. Uh, Matt and I became friendly. Just however it is that people on the internet become friendly. He's a big sports fan. Slide into the DMs. With- yeah, that probably that's what happened uh, in a platonic way. And uh, <laughs> I, I think I, I went on, let's see, I went on for the first time in the spring of 14, came back this spring. And by then, you know, everybody was friendly. So Chris came and did stand up in Denver and it was nice enough to get us back to passes. And was nobody else, it was just me and my wife. And the true test of, of you know, when you to tell the quality person is when they're nice to your partner. You know, if you. They have no specific reason to be nice. They don't know the person, but she he was extraordinarily nice to my wife. And uh, that makes a big difference in how I evaluate people. Let's put it that way. I mean, he's always a great dude and whatever, but I was just like, oh, like, this is the kind of person that I want to link up with, aside from what he's doing professionally. And, you know, from him, there's again Adam Reimer, who's the president of Nerdist. Um, just other people, all the way down there, social media people, everybody. Uh, my podcast producer, Katie Levine. These are all really good people. And uh, what I've said in the past when I, people are asking me about nerds is what's their philosophy? Basically, let's make a thing. They don't really worry about what are the politics of it, how is this going to play, whatever they say. You know, we like you, you're smart, you're fun, you're nice, whatever, just go make your thing and we will support you. And that's all I really wanted. And uh, I can tell you that I've edited a lot, a lot of other podcast possibilities. I talked to just about every podcast company in the known universe. And, uh, you know, ultimately figured out that that was the place for me, both because I had a chance to build a thing. I mean, that was certainly a big part of it. But also, honestly, even if Nerdist Sports wasn't going to be a thing, it was just my podcast, that would have been a great fit for me anyway. That was just an opportunity to build something new there and to establish a presence they didn't have. When Grandland ended, and, and uh, even even um, even when you were just kind of getting started, did you ever think that, the, that you'd be doing this kind of stuff? Um, well, I don't this kind of stuff. I mean, you know, a lot of it is still my core competency. I'm still going to be writing about baseball. Still going to be talking about sports. You know, a lot of these are just kind of tweaks. So, like for instance, the podcast. Now, the first two episodes were with Hardwick and with Keith Olbermann, and the goal was don't talk about the backup second baseman for the Pittsburgh Pirates because that's I, I, you know me. I mean, I definitely know all of the best backup second baseman for the Pittsburgh Pirates, but I just felt that I had more to contribute than that, that I could do something broader, still honors, you know, what sports fans and baseball fans wanted, but get into some deeper discussions, again, just a little bit of real talk and all that. And the first two episodes, I think, have that, and that's the theme throughout the show. So there's actually going to be a couple of guests that will have almost nothing to do with sports. And then down the road, you'll see guests that are extremely, very much about sports, including athletes, including GMs, you know, meat and potatoes kind of sports guests. So it's really going to be a mix. 
So I'm excited about it. The one thing that I did not anticipate, I will say flat out, was the opportunity to build something, you know, beyond myself. Uh, and again, I don't know how that's going to go, how big it's going to be, wh- what it's going to consist of. But Nerdist has given me that platform, that opportunity, and that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you know, I've been an editor before, like I've helped people with their work. I've been in a supervisory role, I guess you could say. But I've never, never something like this where I'm. It's not that I'm paying people the money, but I have the ability to, you know, bridge the gap and basically make it so they can get jobs. And uh, and that's what I'm very excited about. So, you know, I, I've had conversations with people whose work I greatly admire uh, already, and uh, you know, we talked about what the possibilities are. And uh, we will see how that goes. But that, this was something that, yeah, I agree. If you had asked me before, could this have been possible? I would have said maybe possible, but not probable. And, and now it's happening. So let's rewind way back when, uh, when you first realized that you want to uh, go into sports writing. What, what was kind of the, the reason that you decided to pursue this as a career? Because I knew I couldn't play in the NBA. I was literally <laughs> like 12 when I wanted to be a sports writer. I, you know, I was very tall as a kid. I was six foot four. I played basketball. I was pretty good, uh, but you know I'm a Jewish kid from the suburbs, and I didn't play seven times a week. And I don't have extraordinary athletic ability, and, and you know you, you hit your glass ceiling soon enough. And uh, even as, as a tween, or even as an early teenager, it was obviously okay. Well, whatever. I'm fine in my little league here, but I have no chance. And so, okay, what else do you do? And, and uh, I just thought, well, this is a neat way to get into it is to, is to try to write about it. And um, that was something that was thought. I mean, I was into it already, but my dad fostered it very much. He bought me my first Bill James abstract when I was eight and also got me my first subscription to Sports Illustrated when I was either eight or nine, right in that uh, span. And so I just devoured that stuff. I was a heavy reader. On top of those two big influences, just on a local basis, I grew up in Montreal, and uh, there was a guy named Michael Farber, who was the uh, lead kind of sports columnist for that paper. Uh, he would do city news. He did all kinds of stuff. He was just a team journalist. And he's now writing, he's been writing hockey for uh, SI now for, I don't know, 20 years or something. And is one of the leaders. But, um, you know, he was just our local guy. I mean, you know, you could just wake up in the morning and wherever you're, uh, you know, I'm old enough that back then it was pre-internet and all that. And you're at the mercy of whatever city you have to grow up in. So, I mean, if your columnist is trash, you have no choice. That's who you have. And uh, fortunately, far uh, certainly wrote about the Montreal Canadiens, who were the kind of flagship team for that city, but he really cared a lot about baseball, too, which I thought was interesting. He's an American uh, who had come to Canada and fall in love with the city and with a Montrealer and subsequently married her. Uh, and, you know, so he had that those sensibilities where, he, yes, the hockey was certainly his job, but he was a baseball fan and it was a baseball team, and he did that justice. And I came of age at a time when that team, well, at least for the first couple of years when I was following them for like the early 80s now, I'm young, young, young. Uh, they were pretty good. They were pretty bad in the mid-80s, but they were good in the early 80s. And so that was fun. That was just a neat uh, way to, to grow up. So with that, to uh, Bill James, to SI, and, and really just to whatever sports I could get my hands on. And, uh, you know, I go through high school and college and whatever. I majored in journalism. Uh, so totally something that I wanted to do. The problem was I graduated in 1997. In 1997, the internet certainly existed, but it was very difficult to do what I wanted to do, which is I felt that there was a, a market to be had for writing, not quite opinion, but just informed, I mean, even analysis isn't quite right, because that, that hadn't really been shaped all that well. It was just writing smart content without necessarily needing to go eat hot dogs and go on the road 300 days a year or whatever. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be like 
you know, Bill James. I think Bill James gets all his recognition for his analytical skills and not for his writing skills. This guy is a, was a terrific, he is still a terrific writer, just spins a mean tale and knows how to use the data and shape it into narrative, and that's kind of what I wanted to do. Uh, and the only two people that I really was, I, I found that I could connect with on that level when I came out of college uh, were Bill Timmons, who became my boss later, mm-hmm. and Rob Nyer, who's now you know one of my best friends and a confidant and, and all that. And, um, and so, as a result, because there wasn't that market, um, Simmons and I are both older than me, uh, so I kind of had to pay my dues or whatever. I just said, okay, well, do I pay my dues at the local newspaper and become the assistant to the assistant high school field hockey writer? No, too arrogant for that. Uh, no offense to field hockey, but just didn't want to do that. So I tried to find another way to get into the system quickly and try to establish myself and get real reps in a place where I get noticed. I said, yes, that's what I want to do. And so that ended up in business writing. So by age... When I was 24, I moved uh, from D.C. I moved from Montreal to D.C., worked in D.C. for a couple of years, got, you know, did all right there. And then I moved to L.A. and got to a place called Investors Business Daily. Investors Business Daily was the, might still be the second largest business newspaper in the country and very quickly became a pretty, you know, for that field, well-regarded stock market writer. I was writing the front page story for that uh, paper. They have a kind of a, uh, a daily wrap-up stock market story with some pretty heavy analysis every day, and I wrote that for years and years and years. That was my job. And uh, that was cool just because that helped me figure out a way, even though it wasn't sports, I was developing analytical chops. There's a very data-oriented company, Investors in Business Daily. They didn't really care about what your traditions were in investing or what your intuition was. It was all about, here's the data. This is the most likely outcome based on the data. And I think I really gravitated toward that, even though I had no training in econ. I was just a BA in journalism. But that kind of helped me. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to take a breath. You could re-ask another question <laughs> if you want. That's not, that's not the end of the passage, but that is a long answer. Um, I, I mean, it, I think it's interesting that, like, you, instead of deciding to go and, and kind of uh, getting your reps as a, as a sports writer covering, uh, you know, menial events and stuff, you decided to go the business route and get your reps that way. Was that a conscious decision, or was just was that just kind of a, a result of, Hey, this is an opportunity to write interesting things. I'm going to take it. Well, I will tell you flat out what I what I tried to do when I moved to LA. This is 1999, and uh, now the internet's a little bit more advanced. I'm about two years out of college at that point, and I apply interviewed with six different newspapers. So still no internet job, uh, you know, interviews or anything. But I, I went to just newspapers. I interviewed with let's see if I can remember this: the Wall Street Journal, Investors Business Daily, two of the local business journals, and the LA Business Journal and the Orange County Business Journal. I interviewed with the Orange County Register, and I interviewed with the LA Times. So a good mix, you know, some high-profile papers, some businessy kind of thing, some local stuff, whatever. To each of the six, I went in, I did job interviews. I said, I'm 20, again, 24 years old. I said, I want to be a sports business writer, because I thought, this is great. I'd already, I'd already started on the business stuff a little bit in Washington, D.C. I was covering, like, commercial real estate and local affairs and stuff like that. And I said, okay, this is cool. So I, I thought, this, I'm going to write my own ticket. I'm going to create something uh, out of these two spheres. Well, I'm very interested in sports, but I'll approach it from a business angle. And I went to all six of those papers, and they said, sports business, that, that's not a, what are you talking about? That's not a thing. I so said, want, no, I'm going to make it a thing. So you wanted to become Darren Ravel before Darren Ravel was a thing. That is exactly, exactly right. Exactly. And I don't work with Darren. Uh, anymore, so I don't have to be too political. Let me just say that I would have, and I'm not going to be mean about it, but let's just say that I would. I have a different personality than Darren, and uh, it would have come off in a different way than Darren. I have no problem with the way he's a but it 
it would have been very, very different. Let's put it that way. Very different. Um, yeah, 1999, when I went to Darren, came along, I don't know, three, four years later, and maybe I'm getting the date wrong, but that's approximately it, and, and he ended up getting his niche on fight, but that's exactly what I wanted to do, and I wanted to make a TV thing, and I wanted to write about it, and I wanted to build, like, I wanted to build a, God, I hate it, but uh, let's say a brand out of that. I thought that that would be the way in, and uh, all six of those papers were just not far-seeing enough to see it, really. They, they liked me. I think I got four of the six places I interviewed with, I think four of them offered me jobs. Um, but not doing that. And uh, so I gave it a lot of thought. One of them was a sports writing job, by the way. I could have worked for the uh, LA Daily News, which is a you know a good paper. And they've had some very good sports writers come through there. The problem was that, that the house that I'd uh, bought with like every penny that I had, it was like a tiny little condo uh, that we were able to stop, uh, was very far from where the LA Daily News was located. It would have been a commute of over an hour every day, and I didn't want to do that. Was also newlywed and all that. I just wanted to spend time with my wife, and so I passed on that job. And I took the business writing job. Uh, it was more money, more status, closer. And I just thought, you know what? Sports are going to come back to me. I just, I don't know why I just have this twenty four. But I just thought, I'm good enough. I'll get there. I'll, I'll get to do what I want to do. Let me take this better job and kind of hone my chops, just writing and reporting and getting the Gladwell ten thousand hours, and uh, and we'll get back to it. And uh, that's what happened. And so I did that for a, a long time uh, at Western Business Daily. And baseball Perspective came along. And baseball Perspective stuff started in the 97, I think. Uh, and I was reading it. It's funny, you know, the uh, – I think – I wonder about in this generation if it's different. Because I can remember back in the day, everybody read the Baseball Perspective book. And nobody knew that there even was a Baseball Perspective website, probably because the web was not established. And the baseball perspective book has been this like seminal work. It's been so good for so long. So I I didn't know about the book. I knew about the site. I was just like an early relative early of the internet, I guess, and especially sports on the internet. In fact, I was reading Nyer in '95 or whatever, whenever he started. And uh, in fact, it was Nyer who recommended I read baseball perspective. One of his fellows. That's how I discovered baseball perspective. And uh, I was reading and reading and reading it. I'm in LA, living there at the time. And uh, Randy Gisarelli wrote a, an article in November of 01, some, some living Daily, living in L.A., and it was an article about his stratomatically, a very hyper-competitive stratomatically with him and Joe Sheehan and I think maybe one or two other baseball perspective people. And my immediate thought was, if I could join this stupid stratomatically, I could make friends with these people, and then I could go right for baseball perspective. That was literally what I decided I was going to get into my career path was to do it that way. And uh, and I played Stratomatic as a kid, and I discovered girls at 14 or 15 and gave it up. And, uh, you know, tried the girls route for a while and then said, oh, wait, I could be married and also play Stratomatic. That was fine. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's literally my thought process. I'm very simple-minded. <laughs> so, uh, he, you know, he writes this article, and the article basically says, if you want to join the Stratomatic League, just email him, and then he'll just take the first four applicants or whatever. A hundred people wanted to be in on the strategy baseball perspective had this following of lobbyists and, and, and lobbyists, hobbyists, not lobbyists. And uh, very good talent was coming through there and people just dug it. So then he, he wrote another article where he said, okay, if you want to join this league, you're going to have to write an essay about why you want to join. You're going to have to write who's your ideal 25-man roster and why, what are the types of skills you want in, in stratomatic players and sim league players, and, uh, and then finally just a little bit about yourself. Okay, here's my, I put in my thing, I'm like, I want whoever, Barry Bonds, you know, beyond Barry Bonds, I, I, 
outline that I want this platoon guy because I want to take advantage of this and this and this. I was always hyper aware of that stuff. Uh, I just really devoured, even before I was really a sports writer, I was just heavily into the idea of platooning or handedness or defense when people were not talking about defense pitch. I don't know. I probably thought about the game in different ways. Uh, anyway, so a third article, Randy Wright, and in it he announces the four people who joined the league. The first three people were hardcore cinematic players. They were playing the game online, in league, blah, 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 you know, tons of experience. I think there were two of the three were like computer programmers, so the league had a problem. They could like troubleshoot it, like the tech of it, whatever. And the fourth person was me. And the reason that he chose me, yeah, my essay was fine, blah, blah, blah. But he chose me because, and this is true, you can ask him, because he felt bad for me because I was a Montreal Expos fan. That is the reason <laughs> that I was able to join the league. And Joe Sheehan lived in L.A. at the time. Joe and I went out for lunch at Cantor's. I remember it well. And Joe said, so what do you want to do? Like, I understand that you want to do some stuff and try out for us, whatever. And I said, yeah, I want to do anything. And he pitched me the idea of writing something about something called the success cycle. The notion of the success cycle was that teams can't necessarily, especially if you're not the Yankees, can't go for it every year. And so you have to think about when do you want to build and when do you want to not build. And that's just like your decision-making. So don't go out and get a relief pitcher if you know that you're going to think you're going to lose 90 games next year. It's a waste of money. You should be plowing your money into Latin America or the draft. And uh, I subsequently come to disbelieve these. That's like, well, I think I even wrote an article basically refuting it later on. But at the time, it made some sense. And the economics of the game were very different than they are now, where every team has a TV contract and it's easier to kind of try to contend. If not every year, then close to it. Anyway, so that was the first article that I wrote, and that was kind of off and running. That was very well received. Wrote a bunch more stuff, and then just joined them, basically. Uh-huh. And, and, that, and that was great. There's just the group of people through there. And people know, I think people know Joe is and Randy, but there are people like Gary Huckabee who kind of just disappeared from the baseball sphere, but wildly influential, super smart. Michael Wolverton, Keith Woolner is now the lead kind of analyst for some of the Cleveland Indians and has been for years. He invented replacement value. Literally, it wasn't replacement value before Keith Woolner. Um, Clay, uh, Clay Davenport. These people were unbelievably influential in early baseball. Uh, and this is like 2010. So if you're a junior, I mean, you are a small child at this point. I'm not saying this to denigrate you. I'm just saying that it's like, <laughs> yeah. it, it's, it, you might not be fully aware of, and maybe you are, but their names and their influences. But like to a power of nine million more than anything I could possibly do. They invented concepts that are just it rolls off the tongue of anybody who works for hardball tires with aggressive baseball perspective now. And um it was really cool to work with the people. I was there at the time. I the, I can remember uh we had a you know, I joined the staff and then we had an annual meeting in oh three and uh, Gary Huckabee comes in and he says, Hey, uh, you know, there's a guy and we're gonna bring him into the group and we think he might be able to do some stuff. He's this kid, and, you know, he's doing stuff for the big five firm, and he's really bored, and he's just making spreadsheets in his spare time. But, yeah, he could work out for us, and we think he could uh, he could do some stuff, uh, you know, and, and we'll see what happens. And his name was Nate Silver, and that worked out okay for Nate Silver. So, yeah, it was just an amazing group of people, and I, I was just, you know, an intellectual lightweight, I guess, by comparison. But, I, you know, I understood writing and editing really well, and that was the role that they wanted to me, and I wasn't a heavy stats guy. I was just somebody who understood the complicated stuff and could translate it into English. And so for the rest of my career, I even started with Investors Business Daily on the baseball perspective and on. I felt like my job was just use my storytelling chops and, and my ability to understand stuff, even if I'm not inventing new formulas or whatever. And maybe that'll plus, it'll be an audience for that. Mm-hmm. Literally what it's been, been what it's been for, I don't know, almost two decades now. It's been a long ass time. Um, and it's worked out. And it's exactly my niche. 
exactly what I want to do. And so we'll see. It might not always be baseball. I might, like, I'm very interested in basketball. I might try to do a little bit of that. And, uh, you know, it might toe into the Zach Lowe kind of field, whatever. Uh, maybe eventually it'll be politics. Maybe eventually it'll be culture. I don't know. Uh, all I know is that uh, I like the idea of making things full and, and fun to read. And, and that's kind of my, uh, my daily work, for better or for worse. I mean, you that was your first sports writing experience professionally. Was yep. it was it intimidating for you to go into that environment with all of those, you know, baseball stat legends and, and, and be writing under the same masthead as them? I wouldn't say intimidating exactly. It's just that I had to figure out how it was going to fit in because they were able to do their own research and then write articles. And I just, you know, God, I don't even remember if school was around then. Maybe it was. I don't know. But I just I didn't have... It wasn't easy for me to pick up programming languages. My brain just doesn't fire that way. Like, I think I'm, I'm like okay, smart, whatever. But I just didn't. I'm not. I just I don't function that way. So I would rely on other people to run queries for me. And I sort of felt not bad, but just gosh, I wish there was a way. And then you had stuff like Baseball Reference starts coming along, and then you had sortable stats and eventually play index and all that. And then it became, well, gosh, I don't really need to work in R or SQL or whatever. It'd be nice. I'd like to do it. I, I wish I had that skill set. But if I don't, it doesn't mean that I'm a failure, and it doesn't mean that I can't succeed in this industry. And that was kind of a, a boost for me just in terms of self-esteem. It was, oh, I can make my own impact just by telling stories and writing articles and being on point and don't do hot takes, do reasonable analysis, uh, but make it fun, make it light, make it interesting. And once I kind of settled into that groove that I don't need to necessarily be Keith Wolner, which there are a few people who be Keith Wolner, and it was great. And then I was able to... Uh, find my way and, and work it out. And, and so I was very happy about that. And that's only grown. I mean, the, the, all the advances that have been made just in terms of ease, and use, uh, ease of use, that you can get so much complicated stuff. Like Brooks Baseball is unbelievable. You know, if I want to know about what Justin Verlander is doing, Dan and Harry have already done everything. They were, you know, I just have to punch it up. Oh, here's this velocity. Here's the vertical plane. Here's the spin axis. Here's all this stuff. And I didn't do anything. I just found this stuff. And then I can go write a, a thousand-word essay about Justin Verlander, and I come off as super smart. And in fact, Harry and Dan did all this heavy, heavy lifting in the first place. So, you know, it's a matter of me finding my place within the industry, recognizing my limitations, but also recognizing my strengths and playing to those strengths. And, and now it's just, I'm lucky. I'm in a golden age for this. You know, if I came up in the 70s and I was trying to be Bill James or Pete Palmer, forget about it. It's not happening. Like, I could, I, I could write well. Uh, that would be fine. But I would not be able to do all the stuff that the internet has allowed me to do. At what point did you kind of discover or find your voice in, in that in that realm of, of kind of being uh, someone who can explain these complicated co- concepts to people uh, for for to make those uh, stats and stuff more accessible? That was really with Investor's Business. I have to say, I think it was before I started doing sports stuff. I should, BP was my first kind of steady-ish gig or maybe gig that I'd be known for, but I was, I'd, I'd done some sports writing. I, I used to write for the Montreal Gazette, uh, while I was still in college, I, I pretty much had a full-time job while I was in college, which was totally insane, and I had no social life when I was 20, which is stupid in retrospect or whatever. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, you know, I come along and I get to Investors Business Daily, and this is a totally foreign concept for me. When I did my job interview, you know, I, I just thought it, I had heard of them and whatever, and I thought, well, the stock market could be interesting. And they weren't, you know, to their credit, they were not scared of my lack of, that I didn't have an econ degree or whatever. They just said, they showed me a stock chart. They said, tell me what you think about this. And this is in the late 90s, by the way, so a lot of stocks are going nuts, and it was easy to make money back then. But I gave, you know, something of a cogent answer. I said, well, 
know, it's going up and it's living off and he's doing this and, oh, that, oh that, this is an interesting trend and blah, blah, blah. And they said, you've got the nut of it. You sort of understand that we'll take you under our wing, we'll teach you how this stuff works, and you run with it. They believe, by the way, in reading stock charts, which as an aside, if you're not a heavy stock market person, people think that's you. Like, they're just like, no, you can't predict the stock market. You just buy good earnings and you hope for the best. I totally don't believe that. I think that earnings matter a lot uh, and just having good financials, but I think that you can actually divine something out of reading charts. As long as you have discipline rules, you can do that. And uh, even after that, I should made a little, not serious money, but a little bit of money off the stock market in whatever small salary I had when I was 24 years old, 25, 26. And that was exclusively because I gained this knowledge because I was able to understand this difficult concept. And I think it's actually served me well. When I was writing this column, the fact that I didn't wasn't imbued with all this heavy knowledge, it allowed me to kind of write the way that people would want to read. Very simple. They also stretched something, uh, stressed something called a flush score. So if you write in Microsoft Word still, which maybe a lot of people don't, I guess it's probably Google Docs or whatever at this point, but if you ever watch, write in Microsoft Word, there's spell check and there's also something called the flush score. The flush score measures readability. And you actually want to be writing for basically a fifth or sixth grade audience, or at least that's what Investors Business Daily wanted. And that also taught me heavily, don't use flowery words. Don't talk. It doesn't have to be a six syllables and you could do it in three or three when you can do it in two. Paragraphs should be crisper. Don't waste words. Don't mess around. Just convey your message simply. And so I still do that. I'm not trying to dumb it down exactly, but I'm not trying to lard it with things that are not necessarily necessary. Like, I don't think I'm some award-winning writer and, you know, there are people that tell better stories than I do, but there's no junk in my articles. Like, you're just, you know, you're either going to get solid cogent analysis or just a fun Simpsons reference. And that's it. That's, I'm not, there's not going to be other stuff. I'm not going to digress into the history of the world. And the words are not going to be more flowery than they need to be, whatever. And I, that was really all started with IBD. Like, I give them a lot of credit for the foundation of my sports writing career because I knew sports. Like, even when I wasn't writing about sports, I was always heavily involved just in following it, you know, consumed it heavily, baseball and basketball especially. So by the time I actually got a job in that field, I was ready to do it because I understood all the lessons that I learned at IBT. Do you think? Do you think that biz, that that sense of uh, business thinking, I guess, the thought processes you kind of took away from uh, covering covering business and, and the stock market? Do you think that applies to how you think about sports? Yeah, one hundred percent. It's a matter of being analytical. It's a matter of not settling for the the answer that the easy answer because sometimes the answer is more complicated. And just being a thinker, man. Like I, you know, if if somebody met me. If there's three things they would say about me, maybe four things they would say about me. Number one, they'd say that I'm friendly. I'm, like, outrageously friendly. I, I like everybody. That's number one. And that's whatever. I don't know if that's a good trade or not, but I just, I like people. Okay. Number two is I'm very, very tall. For a Canadian Jew nerd, I'm six foot four. That's very unusual. Okay? Number three, I guess there'd be three things. And the three, third thing would be that I'm very, very, very intellectually curious. Like, if I was, I'm not in the same room as you right now, but if I was in the same room, we were talking to you at a desk. If you had a pencil and a pack of gum. I would want to know, where'd you get that pencil? What's the deal? Why do you use that instead of mechanical pencils? Why do you use pencils at all? Why not pens? Why don't you use your computer? Pack of gum. Oh, I see you chew sugarless gum. Why not hubba bubba? Oh, because your dad had rotten teeth? or whatever. Like, I would just ask these preposterous questions down and down and down the rabbit hole because I just love learning about things, everything. Like, if you, if you look at who I follow on Twitter, yeah, I follow baseball writers. I follow a ton of political writers, a ton, because I, I'm Canadian. I moved to this country. I want to learn more about the political system, so I'm following a bunch of people. And there are political writers that do things 
in much the same way that sports writers do, where a Cam Newton does something and, oh, Cam's a baby, Cam's this, Cam's this, Cam's this, with a hot take machine? No. I don't follow those sports writers, and I also don't follow those political writers. I'm not, yeah, let me tell you about who the prettiest person is or who the popularity contest favors. I want to know about the nitty-gritty of Bernie Sanders' health plan or Marco Rubio's talking about this. I want to know all of it. And uh, that just informs everything that I do. And even if you just meet me socially for a beer, I'm just like that. And uh, I think that can work in this industry. You know, I, I think that there's a, a place for it. It's unfortunate that Grantland doesn't exist because they really encourage that. But what I found uh, in job hunting before I ultimately landed where I did was that other places appreciated that too. It's not restricted to one place, not just Grantland or just in New York or just places that are considered hoity-toity. In fact, that, that is valued everywhere. And I think that kind of, I guess my generation of writers have been lucky in that we've happened to come into an era in which we're appreciated uh, for that. I've just, again, it's been an accident of history, but whatever it is that I do for a living, however it is that I think about my job, happens to be embraced in this point of time and time. doesn't mean that I make even a fraction of what Skip Bayless and Stephen A. Smith make, uh, but I'm, I'm okay with that. I can live with that, and it's fine. And I accept that, and I understand that it, uh, what I do is not for everybody, but it's for enough people. And that, that has been uh, very fortunate for me. Where do you think that curiosity comes from? Is that, is that from your family? Or, I mean, what kind of fostered that, that sort, sort of sense of just kind of asking about things? My dad reads more than any person who's ever lived. He's just, I, you've never, if, if it's my, after dinner, like if I'm if just hanging out at his house, he's, you know, shoes are off. Uh, I, can, I can actually picture in my mind. This is uh, my dad uh, always dresses the same way. Well, unless he's, he, he, if it's fancy, then it's fancy. But otherwise, he's wearing shorts, including the dead of winter in Canada, uh, penny loafers with no socks, and he has one leg crossed over the other, and he has a book in one hand, and he's kind of with his left hand, he might be holding like a glass of water, and that is like his default mode since I was four years old. Like from my earliest memory, I remember my dad doing that, and he never said you should read a lot overtly. It's just you know you pick up lessons and. The lesson is that reading opens you to different worlds. And so I read a ton. I read, you know, a lot of articles, a lot of books, often, very often not about sports, because I think I'm just in sports all the time. I want to get away from it. Um, and, and that has rubbed off on me. So, uh, and again, if he's by me, you know, if I'm the type of kid who's reading Bill James when I'm literally eight, you kind of know what path the kid is going to go down. You know what I mean? It's going to be yeah. nerdy. It's going to be intellectually curious. It's going to be all that stuff. And so, uh, you know, the lessons that he conveyed, not necessarily pushing me in one direction or another, he never said, go be a doctor or a lawyer or a journalist. He just kind of you know, led by example, just intellectually in that respect, uh, anyway. And, uh, and so I think I followed up on that. I, I think that I had that in me uh, genetically to some extent, and I followed by example. And then I learned that I liked it. I mean, you know, your dad or your mom can, can try to convey lessons, but if, you, if they tell you, hey, you should do this unpleasant thing, well, you're not going to do it. But I found reinforcement from reading. I really, really enjoyed it uh, from a very early age. And so I just kept doing it a lot. And so when I talk about intellectual curiosity, that's me wanting to learn stuff, but that's very much informed by reading. And if I actually in this field, the two pieces of advice, uh, maybe I'm, I'm going to, heading this off of the past, you might ask it later, I don't know. But it's literally just read a lot and write a lot. Just practice what it is that you're trying to do and then find out how other people do it. That, that's ultimately it. That probably applies, by the way, to under, other industries too, but certainly for journalism, where reading and writing is the actual profession. So that's a neat thing. That the, 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 the activity that I like more than anything happens to coincide with my job. You know, it's possible that I could like 
hang gliding more than anything. Hang gliding is a great pursuit, but I'm not going to hang glide for a living. In this case, the reading and writing thing is literally exactly what I do. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that Grandland was kind of a place that fostered the intellectual curiosity that, that you had. Um, what was, uh, beyond just what, what Grandland stood for as a journalistic media entity, uh, what was kind of the story for, uh, for you of, uh, of joining, of joining the, the website? They had a no-assholes policy, and it worked really well, honestly. Like, if you work at a place where everybody's pulling at the same end of the rope and you feel supported, you feel proud to work with these people because, number one, they do good work. And, my God, I mean, <laughs> Zach and Molly Lambert and Amos Barshad and Jonathan Abrams and Barnwell and Katie and Sean and Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald, Stephen Hayden, and Hayden, it's for part, like, it's just ludicrous. So we had lived in it's just over and over and over. I can't, we could... This conversation will never end if I list all the good people who work there. And um, so that's, you're proud of that, but you're also proud of these people are good people. So you just want to do good work to honor what they're doing. I mean, that was the big thing about that place. And I, I think that people like Zach and Barnwell and maybe to some extent me, like we have a little bit of a profile because we're kind of out there and we're like the flagship writers in the different sports. Like I was, you know, doing the baseball stuff almost from the get-go. Lindbergh, too. Lindbergh is awesome. And it's gonna, already almost there, but he's going to be a superstar. Like, he's really good and uh, so smart and, and so great. And I, I can't say enough good things about Ben. And, um, yeah, it, it's just one of those things where you end up wanting to do good work in that kind of environment. The combination of good people uh, and everybody doing good stuff, it makes you want to do that. But, but what I was going to say was, you know, if me or Lindbergh or Zach or Barnwell or Katie or whatever have more of a profile, the editors held that together. I mean, they were the driving force. It's not necessarily that they said, not necessarily that they said, um, go and write this article. They weren't assigning most of my stuff. I was self-assigned. But they created a culture by which I could be turnkey, by which I could do good stuff. I didn't have to look over my shoulder. I didn't have to know that I was going to be called into a meeting. Just work hard and do your job, and, and you'll be rewarded for that. They, they put faith in me that I would do it. And I, I hope I honored what they were trying to uh, get out of me well enough. And, and that was that. And so, uh, you know, it, it, it was really wonderful from that respect just to be able to, to find that environment, to find that supportive environment, a place where people cared about each other, uh, a place where it could work. Uh, and, and it felt great. And, and, you know, we all are going to have great jobs. I mean, all of us. Like, I, I have too many jobs probably. And uh, and other people found great stuff. I mean, Robert Brown is literally going to be like president of the United States in the next ten years. Like, yeah. there, there. It's just, it's amazing. Like, no, I don't think people are going to suffer coming out of that. I don't, I don't fret for anybody's career. Like, if you look at, uh, gosh, what Dan Fuhrman and Holly Anderson and Brian Phillips and the MTV crew. That's one like splinter group. Andrew Sharp and me and Robert Mays all write for SI. Uh, you've got the Simmons group with uh, Chris Ryan and Mallory Rubin and Sean Fantasy, Juliet Littman. And uh, yeah, more people coming down the pike eventually, and and it's just uh, there's that and, and 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 all the other opportunities, like so many different opportunities. But I will say that just that having all that stuff under one roof again, acknowledging that CBS has been so good to me, and SI has been so good to me, and Nerdist, God, I love Nerdist. I, I you know I might end up working for Nerdist forever. Who knows? That's a great great company, really and truly. But Grandland just had this thing where all these people were in one place. And all these people were doing, you know, working toward the same goal. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a tough standard to live up to. It really, uh, to me, I don't know if it's a pinnacle of journalism. There have been other good places, that's for sure. But in terms of workplaces, I can't imagine that there was anywhere better ever. Like, really, 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 really. That was just, 
I can't speak more highly of the people and the talent. Mm-hmm. How did you see yourself grow as a writer and, and just kind of a, a, a thinker and, and just as someone covering sports uh, and writing about it? How did you see yourself grow uh, over over the course of time at Grandland? Um, I think it was just getting into the comfort zone. You know, baseball perspectives was not a full-time job. Grantland was my first full-time sports writing job of my life. And I didn't officially sign a contract with Grantland until November 1st of 2011. So I was 37 years old. So I know that you, you, you know, we talked before we went on air. Hey, you're an inspiring journalist or whatever. You're going to kick my ass in terms of development. You'll be in the industry way before me. Like I, and again, part of it was my choice granted. Like I obviously, uh, wanted to do the uh, business writing thing. I made that choice. I figured that would be a good call. And I didn't want to just, you know, have to go to the trenches in, in, uh, in rural uh, Saskatchewan or whatever to make it happen. But the bottom line is it did take me a long time. So a lot of it was just literally getting used to the reps of being a full-time sports writer. I knew that I could do it. I was doing the similar kind of stuff with baseball perspectives. I wrote for ESPN page two. I was a freelancer by choice. I kind of, you know, faded away from investors business daily on purpose to make a go of the sports thing. And I was writing for, I wrote for Playboy, I wrote for Penthouse, I wrote for Maxim, GQ, Jump.com a little bit, like every men's magazine in the world, did some stuff in the Wall Street Journal, uh, did a little bit of stuff in the New York Times. Like I was just, I wrote for anybody who wanted me. Uh, so I was getting reps, but I didn't have the kind of flow of, you have to write three or four times a week plus a podcast, sometimes five times a week, uh, and it better be good and it better be on time and it better be topical all the time. So it was just kind of getting used to that flow. Um, and I, even, you know, even now, it's certainly the case that by the end of the season, I wouldn't say that I'm burned out, but I'm ready for vacation. Like the day that the World Series ends, I just go F off somewhere. Like I, I just, I keep unplugged from the internet and I go be with my kids. And, uh, if I can leave town, I will. And I don't think about baseball at all, at all, at all, at all. Uh, and then I stay fresh until about February or March and then the grind starts again. And, and you just accept that. But I never had a grind. So I think it was just learning the, the rhythms, the cadence, the pacing, uh, and the hard work that was required to focus specifically on that one thing and do it really well. You mentioned you mentioned that you were you were you know 37 years old when you first signed your, your first contract as a as a first uh, as a full time sports writer. Um, mm-hmm. Before that, was it was it tough for you to you know you know getting getting older and not having that first full time sports job? Um. Yes and no. Like I said, I mean, I, I was, you know, I was with IBD well into my 30s, and I liked being a full-time freelancer, actually. I was able to pay my bills uh, and just find a whole bunch of different gigs. So that was really exciting. And gosh, like, I don't know if even you can find this stuff on the internet, because a lot of these were other magazines and stuff. But I went to, uh, Penhouse sent me to Madrid to write about bullfighting. Uh, and then they sent me to Japan to write about Japanese baseball. These are freaking dream assignments. Like, <laughs> you're, you're paying me plus my flight uh, to go to Madrid and Tokyo. Like, it was it was uh, crazy. You know, really, really fun. And uh, so I have no regrets about being a freelancer at that point. I just felt that um, the right opportunity needed to come along. And I talked to various uh, publications about, hey, maybe this. You know, ESPN and I, ESPN and I kind of sniffed around at each other a little bit because I was writing for page two. Um, but page two weakened a little bit and, and changed and that wasn't quite right. And, and then Grantland came along and I was just like, Oh, well, this is, this is perfect. Actually, this is, you know, the exact right way to go. Uh, you could almost look at it like getting married, right? You, you know, you, you're younger and you, you're playing the field, not just because you want to have fun, but because you want to figure out what is it that I want out of, out of a serious, uh, permanent relationship. I, I want to find somebody that, 
not only do I love or not only am I attracted to them, but I connect with them and, and I'm, I'm close with them and I can, they can stand even when I'm at my worst and, you know, all the, all the really heavy stuff that goes into relationships. And I think that's how it was in retrospect. It was maybe not hard. It was harder to see it then, but looking back, I think that's what it was for sports writing for me where I probably could have found a full-time job somewhere, but something wouldn't have been right. Maybe the pay wasn't right. Maybe the environment wasn't right. Uh, maybe the city that I would have had to live in wasn't right, whatever. And in this case, it was I could work from home. I live in Denver. I love the city. Uh, although I did get the job. When did I get that job? I booked that job when I was still in New Hampshire, but I moved soon after to Denver. Um, loved uh, working from home. Loved the idea of working with the people that I did. Loved the kind of job that I had. Loved the support that I had. Frankly, loved the uh, reader interaction. Like it was, you know, I had a, somewhat of a following before Grandland. But it exploded afterwards because, you know, we all benefited from the halo effect and Simmons and, and that's also the good. And, and I, you know, I'm deeply grateful for that. And I just really liked going on Twitter after posting an article and then discussing it with people. Like, I'm really, really engaged. I try really hard to answer almost everybody who tweets at me uh, as best as I can. And uh, and it was fun. And, and negative stuff was fine, too. If they said, I totally disagree with you about your take about the Detroit Tigers. You say that they're old. But in fact, secretly behind the scenes, I'm making this up, by the way. I don't know if I ever said this about the Tigers, but like, <laughs> uh, but I, the Tigers have actually been on my mind because I just wrote a little thing about them. And it's like, well, they have Nick Castellanos and, and Iglesias and, and, uh, and some other guys. And maybe I need to be thinking not only in terms of who the most famous guys are, like Mickey and Victor, but that they do have J.D. Martinez is in his 20s, this guy's in his 20s, whatever. And, and, and it, it broadens the horizons. That's part of that intellectual curiosity that, you know, there's the old expression, you never read the comments on your article. And that's true. I guess if you're posting something on YouTube, probably don't read the comments. And Grandland didn't even have gonna... comments. And didn't even have comments. But the people that follow me on Twitter, uh, or at least the people that interact with me on Twitter, are hella smart. They're with it. They're very engaged. If you're... And I will say this. I think there's some selection bias. I think if you're choosing to read my stuff, you just want to be nerdy. You want to go down the rabbit hole. You want to have that stuff because that's my style. And so they're as good about understanding baseball, if not better, than I am. And particularly if I'm writing about an individual team, because my job is to write about all 30 teams. It was with Grandland. It's still going to be the way that signs CBS. So even if there's somebody, like even if I can do a really good job nationally, if I'm writing about the Detroit Tigers and there is a really, really engaged Detroit Tigers blogger, no matter how hard I try, no matter what I do, I will not have more knowledge than a Detroit Tigers blogger. So that Tigers blogger will come in and say, you really need to be thinking about the Tigers in this particular light. And I'll say, you're totally right. I didn't think of it that way. Thank you. And by the way, some people might be a little, um, what's the word I'm looking for, rough about it. Like they might kind of, eh, you know, dig at me or insult me a little bit. But I, I don't care. Like I have a pretty thick skin about this stuff. It doesn't really bother me. I'm just looking to pick out the nugget. Like you're a stupid idiot. And here's why. As long as you give me the here's why, I don't mind if you're calling me stupid. Anymore. I want to learn. I want to get better. Uh, and by virtue of writing for Grandland, we had such an intelligent audience. It helped me in my job. It wasn't just that I worked alongside Barnwell and Lowe. It wasn't just that I had good editors. It was literally the readers, uh, then and now, by the way, even just starting in these new jobs, who keep me honest and make me do a better job than I would have if I was just writing and never read the comments, I guess, so to speak. So Simmons leaves ESPN, they separate ways, and, you know, uh, at that point, did you kind of realize or uh, think about what the future of Randland was? What, what was your kind of thought process when all that was going going on? I mean, I was devastated. We were all devastated. Um, I, I, don't even, I guess we were thinking about the future of Randland, but it was more that we were just 
bummed out of how it ended. We did not like that at all uh, because we all love Simmons. You know, he he started the thing. It was, we all got hired either by Simmons or somebody who was hired by Simmons. And um, so we appreciated the opportunity as far as jobs went. We, we realized that he put us in a good spot. We liked the vision that he had. The first time I went, and I knew uh, Bill a little bit even before that. In fact, I, like I said, I was reading his stuff in 1997 or 8 or whatever, and nobody read his stuff. And I'm not saying that denigrate him at all. Like, he was really good, but it was just, he was writing for AOL Digital Cities. So he just didn't have a big following. It was just like a niche little thing. So I'd email him, and he'd email me back instantly in 1997 or 8 or whatever because he just didn't have the Simmons following yet. He was very good. Like, he was, uh, you know, had a creative uh, uh, thought process and, and writing process. But it wasn't the same, and so I just kind of kept tabs on him. So I even appreciated the professional influence that he had. Like, even if he hadn't hired me, the fact that I realized, oh, I could do something like what Bill Simmons does, even if I'm not that into the Karate Kid, I could do the same thing. I just kind of realized, oh, this is great. And so we all felt that. We all, we all felt the kinship toward him. So when he left, it was, yeah, I guess at some level we're bummed for ourselves. Who knows what's going to happen? We are just, you know, pissed off that the story got broken. He found out about it on Twitter. We didn't like that. You know, we didn't want him to be done dirty, not more, no more than we would ourselves. So that, and that's basically what it was. And as time went on, I think we became aware to some extent that there was going to be a shelf life of Grandland, especially for Bill and, and what have you, uh, for lots of various reasons, which I'm not necessarily all that keen on going into. But, uh, uh, but yeah, it really did start that day in May when we found out, the same time he found out, uh, we just felt, well, well, gee, I mean, Bill was going to land on his feet. There was no doubt about that. And he's more than has now. I mean, it's just the podcast alone is a wild success. And, and I'm super, super happy for everything that he's been able to do. Uh, but still, you know, that had to hurt, I would imagine. And uh, the, the, you know, after working with ESPN for so many years, that that's how it ended. I, I didn't think that was cool uh, on ESPN's part, no matter what reasons they give. And again, I, like, I like my time at ESPN. I'm happy they supported me. Like, they absolutely gave me a platform, and that's all great. I just mean specifically with what happened with Simmons, I didn't think that was necessarily handled perfectly. So the end of Grandland comes, you know, ESPN announces the shutdown. What was going, going through your head on that day? Uh, I was really sad. <laughs> um, for a lot of reasons, you know. Uh, I was first, you know, One of the first things that came to mind for me, uh, because I will tell you flat out that I was looking for jobs already. Why was I looking for jobs? Because they killed Grandland on October 30th of 15, and my contract was up on October 31st of 15. And we knew that something was probably going to happen with Grandland because Mallory and Chris and Juliet and Sean had gone over to Simmons in mid-October, and uh, we didn't have much of a rudder after that. Uh, there are people like Rafe Bartholomew, uh, people who might not be household names necessarily, but busted their ass to try to keep the thing going. But we knew it wasn't going to last long. And at that point, ESPN hadn't necessarily come to me and said, here's a seven-year contract extension. So I knew I had to be looking at places. Um, so I wasn't that worried about myself because I was already in the mode of being a job hunter. The first thing that I thought about is what's going to happen to the culture writers. That is literally what I thought about. I thought about people like Amos Barshad and Molly Limer and people like that. And they were very good. Like, it wasn't that I didn't think they had the skills to get jobs. Like, they're spectacular writers. Um, it was more... ESPN was willing to absorb the sports people, at least for a while, and take care of them and, and give them extensions if necessary, whatever. And these people were just kind of suddenly out of a job. So were they going to be out of a job for a month, six months, whatever? Where are they going to land? I just kind of wanted to be happy in everything that was going to happen with them. And, and a lot of those people have landed jobs, and they're really good, too. And I'm not necessarily uh, as close with them interpersonally, I guess, just because our paths haven't crossed as much. But what, what, the ones that I did meet, I liked a lot, and I love their work. 
So um, I guess it was that. And then the story that I've told a couple times about just that day, what I remember about that day was um, they give they have a, 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 what do you call it, like a conference call with us to tell us. And they announced it almost immediately on Twitter. And uh, I don't remember. One person tweeted at me and said, oh, thank you. I appreciate you saying the nice words and whatever. And I left my computer. I just said, "This I don't want to deal with this. And I, I think I hung out with my wife uh, that day, who's the best, by the way, and is the most supportive person in, in every way, in every freaking way. Like, just she makes spreadsheets of my guests for my podcast. Like that's, <laughs> and she's a, she has a PhD in child psychology. She's a very, very high up in her field and does amazing work and takes the time to do that. I can't even like I don't you know I don't talk that much about her, or write that much about her necessarily, but she's you know the best. And uh, so we, let's say, went out for lunch, whatever it is we did that day. And I came back, and uh, I look, I have a pretty good following on Twitter. Like, I don't deny that. But I had more than 3,000 unread mentions. 3,000 wow. unread mentions. That is crazy. I'm not saying that's a brag. I'm, I'm just telling you uh, that that was the reaction that people had uh, to all of us. I'm sure that all, everybody, maybe Zach had 10,000 unread mentions. I don't know. But, um, and that was because of how people felt, yeah, maybe this, me, about me to some extent, but about Grantland. They were just, there were people who definitely said, dude, I'm sorry about the thing. But there were a lot of people who just said, I am sad about Grantland. And, and, and that really resonated. And I felt more emotional about them caring about the place that I worked at than I did about, I'm going to miss you. Because frankly, I figured that I would get a job. I was already in job hunting mode. I wasn't worried about that. It was more... This place is gone. And I cried a ton that day, but I didn't cry because I was sad. I cried because I was happy and completely appreciated. I felt that I was appreciated. I felt the ground was appreciated, and I was emotionally touched. And I think on the, maybe the Monday after whatever, I had some tweets, like 13 tweets or whatever, and I named everybody at Grandland how awesome they are and how I would go to war for any of them and how great the, the readers were and the listeners and all that stuff. And it was genuine, man. Like, I felt deeply, deeply touched in a way that you, like, think about when you're emotional in life. Like, it usually has to do with relationships, right? You get into a relationship, you fall in love, you either get married or you break up or whatever. I've been in the same relationship for a while. I love my wife deeply, but it's not chaotic, right? Like, we, we, we have the same thing going on. You're not going through these roller coasters when you've been married for a long time. This was an absolute roller coaster in a way that felt like a breakup, except if there was some scenario in which there's a breakup, but then every, not just your friends, but random strangers are coming up to you on the street or on social media and saying, don't worry about it, man. There's plenty of fish in the sea. You're the best. I think you're awesome. And, and I appreciate your work in the realm of relationships, if that were a thing that existed. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, was, it, it was a really, really cool thing, super touching. And I feel not only incredible kinship with Granlin, but incredible kinship with readers. Like when you started, you know, I think before we got on air and you said, oh, I read your stuff and have for a while – Dude, that's the best feeling in the world. And it doesn't matter what happens with my career. And if I get a bigger profile, that will never, ever stop being cool. Mm -hmm. Ever, ever. Yeah. Because what I, what I do is something that serves the public, I guess. It's like this, and it's entertainment. Like, there's no inherent good in what I do. I'm not saving lives. I'm not curing cancer or uh, go taking pro bono cases for people or whatever. I'm just writing about stuff, you know? And for people to appreciate on that level, it, it makes me feel fulfilled. It makes me feel like, yeah, I'm not curing cancer. I wish I could. Uh, but at least I'm doing something that has some impact in society in one way or another. And uh, and I'm super duper grateful for that. And I don't think I ever will stop being that way. Yeah. And I'm listening to you as I look at the two, two like Grandland quarterlies on my bookshelf. And like, I, I mean, on a 
probably on a weekly basis at the very least, like I'll get a text from like one of my friends. I'll be talking to one of my friends at school and we'll just be like, man, like I miss Grandland. Like I miss like going to this place where there's yeah. all these smart writers and they're just all in one place and you get these, these smart takes on not only sports, but like pop culture and just like having that place where you could just know on a dependable basis that you just get smart writing was is just something that I I personally miss on a on a daily basis really that I had to take off Grandland off of my my Google Chrome bookmarks like that that day was really sad for me when I had to delete Google Chrome uh, Grandland off of my my bookmarks. Yeah, I mean that that's really cool to hear. Obviously, I will say this, and I know that I get that I hear this a lot, but uh, go support Lambert and go support Stephen Hyden and Mont Lambert and and Juliet. Lambert's been killing it. Chris Ryan. Everybody's great killing a man. I mean, even even you know what I would say. Don't, don't forget about because I'm going to forget some of the names. Grantland still you can still find Grantland.com. Go through the contributor list. Go find all those names. And even if you're like a big sports person that doesn't follow pop culture or vice versa, or maybe you're only into baseball but not football or soccer, or tennis or whatever, just read any article by any of those people. You'll realize how awesome they are, and then you'll go find them at the Fader or the New Yorker or New York Times or on the internet somewhere, wherever the hell they ended up, SI, CBS, go find these people, MTV, and and consume their work. Please, please do. I know that it's harder when they're not in one place, uh, but, you know, put them in your Google Reader or your Twitter alerts or figure out some way uh, because their work deserves to be honored and appreciated way, way after Grantland. They're so good at what they do. They care so much about what they do, uh, and they're genuinely good people. You're supporting people who not only are good at their craft, uh, but they're they're genuinely nice and kind and sweet, and they deserve that support. Uh, I think that's a pretty good place to to end the recording. Um, Jonah, thanks for thanks for taking the time. I just want to say uh, just a couple things. Um, sure. Yeah, I mean, like for me, like Grandland was just like I I'm from Brookline, Massachusetts, which is where you know Bill's from, and so like yep. I, I think our, I think me and my friends kind of fit like perfectly into that like intellectual intellectual sports fan liberal demographic that that i think yep. grandland like perfectly catered to um so like it was super sad for me like i remember getting a text from like five of my friends like that day i was walking to the supermarket with my friends i, I got a text like just a bunch of a slew of texts saying like oh man grandland closed and i just like didn't know how to react like i felt like somebody had died <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah nice to hear yeah, no, we listen. We felt that way at Grandland that we felt that that that, that the site had died. So it was definitely uh, the same kind of thing. No question about it. Yeah, um, I mean, like I as as like a kid who like you know uh, through high school like and through college read a lot of Grandland. Like I I remember like going into college like Grandland was like my number one internship spot that I wanted to get in at some point during college, and like it really made me sad that I didn't even have a chance to like apply to the Grandland internship. Uh, let, like, let alone just like consider working there, um, or having an opportunity to potentially work there down the road. So that that was a major bummer. Um, I had a chance to uh, to to meet Jay Caspian Kang in New York. We connected sure. on Twitter, and uh, sure. he was like the nicest guy on the planet. It was just like it's really interesting to see like just how many like of all the people that I've talked to about Grandland uh, writers, you know, writers who were who wrote for you guys, and um, it's really. F- interesting to see like how everybody uniformly just speaks so highly of the culture that uh, of the, of the place. Yeah. I, I, well, gosh, you know, in addition to the, uh, just rank and file people on Twitter saying nice things. I mean, there were so many postmortems. It was, it was ridiculous. And, and I try, you know, 
it's sort of weird because it's like navel gazing to reread about this stuff. But at first I kind of didn't. And then I said, well, you know, maybe if they're writing nice things, I guess I could. And, you know, maybe a couple of days later, maybe that weekend, like the wound was a little less raw and I read it. And what I remember, my favorite article, like there were definitely all these think pieces about what is Grantland in or whatever. And, you know, unless you really knew how the sausage was made, you didn't necessarily know 100%. I don't think I've yet seen any article that really quite told everything. Maybe that's an oral history for another day by someone. I don't know who. But, um, what I, my favorite card article was just like, here are my top 15 favorite Grantland stories. And I would read stuff and be like, oh my God, this article from 2011. Grantland's only been around four years, was only around four years. Doesn't seem like a long time, but in my mind, it seemed like a long time because I was in it every day. So I read like this article by Ray Bartholomew about like basketball in the Philippines in 2011. I was just mm-hmm. like, I had completely forgotten about this piece. Yeah. This is a great piece. You know, I just like it just slips off your radar because we have new stuff and I read so much and I forget. My own colleague, I just couldn't literally, it, it wasn't in my mind, oh, this really happened or this or this or this. And, um, uh, yeah, I just consumed the hell out of all that stuff, literally stuff written by my colleagues slash friends. Uh, and that was really neat. You can still do that, by the way, if you just Google, like, best of Grantland or whatever. Oh, you know, I, oh, I, I, I definitely do that. <laughs> yeah, th- those are great pieces. And, uh, gosh, you know how many Grantland people have book deals now? They are literally... It's uh, nuts. They're all sending me my, their book. Like, none of their books, have, a lot of the books haven't come out yet. Yeah. I have, I think, three different Grantland people's books in my house uh, that I'm reading the galleys of right now. I'm reading Lindbergh's mm-hmm. book, which I freaking love. I'm reading Jonathan Abrams' book, which I love, love. I'm a big basketball fan. I think Stephen Hyden, I was just out of town. I was in San Francisco for Super Bowl, but I think Stephen Hyden's book arrived uh, while I got back uh, from San Francisco. I'm going to read that, too. And it's just like, I'm so excited to read this. I'm now I get to yeah. read them in even longer form. Andy Greenwald has a book coming out. I'm sure I'm forgetting some people. It's great. It's just more opportunities to read these people in new places. So it is super sad about Grantland. But all these people are doing great stuff, and, and you know, go support it. Go spend the 15 bucks on, on uh, Amazon, or even better, your local uh, indie place, and uh, and go buy the book and, and support what they do. And uh, uh, I'm sure that would be appreciated by them. Yeah. Well, what was it like working for Simmons? Because, like, as a Boston guy, you know, Simmons is, is you know, right, right in my demographic, um, and I grew up reading him. What was it like working for him? Great. I mean, from the get-go, uh, the first time I, 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 can't, I don't think I told the story to its fruition. I think I started to stop. The first time I went into the LA office was maybe like September of 11 or October, something like that. And the Simmons was there. He wasn't there all the time, but he was there reasonably frequently and he had an office. And so I'm meeting people. Like I didn't know the people there really. Um, and then Simmons is there. He says, hey, John, how are you doing? Just come on into the office and we sit down. 10 minutes, spitball, 10 new stories. Just He just was full of energy, mm-hmm. and he's definitely more of a basketball guy, and I would argue more of a football guy than baseball, uh, but certainly had a lot of thoughts and just helped me think in a different way and was so supportive um, in that way, and he was great. Uh, just a nice guy, you know, just, just yeah. really lo- looked out for his employees. I think it's like anything else, right? Everybody has their own uh, people, you know, and if you're not Simmons' people, then I don't know, maybe you're not necessarily going to be best friends. But if you are his people, oh, my God, he's going to the mat for you, and he's going to make it happen and, and, and do whatever needs to be done. Uh, so I appreciated that. And that yeah. that attitude went to everybody. You know, he was the, the driving force behind the beginning of the site. But the editors who ran the day-to-day and were, had their hands dirty in the copy and were making, you know, the day-to-day decisions, that's like Dan Fearman, Mallory Rubin. Mallory was the best. The best. She was my editor for at least a couple of years. And I dealt with her just, every, you know, every minute of every day, we we're G chatting or whatever. Awesome. And Mike Sobrick and Ray Bartholomew and Chris Ryan and Marco Santi and, 
oh my god, I'm forgetting all the editors. But the, those are the people who, again, they don't have quite as big names as, as the writers, and certainly not as big names as Simmons, but they're the driving force. They were the people in L.A., uh, when, when the crap is a fan, you know, this past year, like they're the ones taking the brunt of it. Mm-hmm. They did it quietly and they tried to protect us and they did everything that they could. And, and, uh, they're saints, man. They're the best. They're yeah. such good people. And, uh, and I hope that, I think a few of these podcasts have been done. Like I've done a couple and some of my colleagues have. And, uh, and we've all given them a lot of depth for what they've done. Those mm-hmm. people that are, that are behind the scenes. They really made it happen, and I'm sure I appreciate it. Thanks so much for the time, Joan. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So that's our show for this week. Thanks again to Jonah Carey for coming on the show. You can follow him on Twitter, at Jonah Carey, if you don't do so already, but I assume if you guys are listening to this show, you probably already do follow Jonah. Uh, we've got an exciting episode for you guys next week. A, a really big guest, Buster Olney of ESPN, uh, Took a, took a lot of his time out uh, of his schedule, of his busy schedule, to talk about uh, his career in journalism and a lot of other things. Buster got really, really personal and talked about his uh, his struggles through college and among many other things. And I really, really think you guys will uh, enjoy the conversation that we had. So that's coming up next week. Uh, make sure to subscribe on any podcasting things you listen to uh, and uh, rate the show on iTunes. And until next time, guys, uh, my name is June, and I'll see you guys in the next one.